I think over time, I'm not the only one that maybe you can relate to this. Over time, we, we seem to get a little bit more jaded about leadership. Have you noticed that? Maybe uh, someone who's your boss at work makes a lot of promises, says all the right things, but when push comes to shove, they kind of push and shove you out of the way so they can advance their own career. Or maybe you've had the, I was going to say privilege, the dubious privilege of meeting a celebrity. In our culture, celebrities tend to be kind of seen as leaders. And then often, not in every case, but often when people actually meet the celebrity that they've built this whole thing up in their mind, the person turns out to be just a little bit self-absorbed. Or maybe uh, general elections coming up, right? And maybe you've been through a few of those and uh, you think, well, here we go again. Televised debates, they've been arranged, fine. Promises, promises. And then after excuses, excuses, you know, you can kind of get a little bit tired, can't you, of of politics and uh, all the hype that goes with that, because over time you don't see people following through in the way they said they would. And then you turn on the news, and on the news you see world leaders, organizational leaders, terrorist group leaders, people willing to kill because of their cause. And the, the shocking thing is that it doesn't shock us anymore. People who kind of trample over others, take advantage of others in order to get what they want in life. And it doesn't matter what the cost or or who pays the price. And so over time, I think it's quite common for us as humans to grow a little bit kind of like, oh, come on. Whenever we talk about leaders or think about leaders, we can grow jaded and say, if only there was someone different, someone we could trust. Well, we're in a series at the moment uh, here at Trinity called uh, A Different Kind of King. And we're using one of the Gospels. The Gospels, there's four of them in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're four documents that were written back in the first century early on to explain Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. And the first of those four that was written was Mark. And we've been working our way through Mark, and we're getting towards the end. And so today we're going to be looking at Mark 14, which is almost to the 16 chapters total we're coming almost to the end and in this chapter we're right on the cusp of and basically what's been happening uh, in the story that that, uh, has been going so far is that Jesus early on called this group of people we call them his disciples his followers he said you guys follow me they followed him he did lots of miracles lots of teaching and he offended the leadership the local religious leadership did not like Jesus Once you get to the middle of Mark's gospel, Jesus started to predict his death. He'd say to his disciples, listen, uh, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over and I'm going to be beaten and I'm going to be killed and on the third day I'm going to rise again. And it seemed to miss them completely. They're like, oh, okay. And they just didn't seem to register what he was saying. And so in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, he kept on telling them. He said, look, the the Gentiles, the the non-Jewish people, the people out there, they lead in a certain way. They lord it over people. But the Son of Man, it's a title for himself, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the story keeps going and the disciples keep scratching their heads because they don't seem to quite twig that Jesus is actually talking literally, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And then we come to the the final week leading up to Easter. 
And we know a lot of information about those last few days. We've got three years of Jesus' life covered in about half of the book of Mark. And then the second half, it slows right down and we can trace it through Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And the, uh, the majority of what we're looking at today is the Thursday. Now, the Thursday, what does that mean? Easter Sunday is in two weeks, right? Uh, April the 5th this year. And interestingly, it was April the 5th that year as well. It doesn't happen very often, but we've got the correct Easter dates this year. And that means that Good Friday was April the 3rd, and Friday was the day Jesus was crucified. So that we're talking about the day before Good Friday. Okay, and at least that's where we're going to end up in chapter 14. And as you look at this passage, there's a lot of information here. We're not going to go over all of it in in detail. But there's this plot. There's uh, religious leaders who wanted Jesus out of the way. So they're plotting and scheming. How can we get him? The crowds seem to love him. We've got to get him quietly. How can we arrest him when there's no one around? And so they came up with this plan that they would arrest Jesus after this big uh, feast festival was over. So all these people had come to Jerusalem And once they all started to leave, we'll grab Jesus and we'll get him killed. And then there's this incident where Jesus is having a meal and and this woman comes in and she takes this incredibly expensive uh, perfume and she breaks open the jar and she pours it on him. And and all the disciples are like, what's going on? And Jesus said, just leave her alone. She's done this for the day of my burial. He's anticipating his death. But there was one disciple in the room called Judas. Judas. Judas has become synonymous with being a traitor. You shout the word Judas in the football stands and in different places, right? It's, it's kind of part of our culture. It comes from this incident right here. One of Jesus' followers was called Judas Iscariot. And we're told in one of the other Gospels that Judas was the one who looked after the money for the group. And he used to help himself to the money. And so you can imagine what's going through his heart. He doesn't really care about Jesus. And suddenly this woman has taken like a in our terms, a 20,000 pound bottle of perfume and just smashed it. And he's like, oh, for crying out loud. That is a massive chunk of change that I could have had in the purse. And I mean, I really could have made some good money off of that. And it so bothered him. It so got under his skin that he went off to the religious leaders of uh, Israel and said, okay, how much will you pay me? I'll, I'll, I'll lead you to Jesus. And so for money, Judas agreed to betray Jesus. And the plan was, let the Friday, Saturday, Sunday go past, and then Judas can make sure that Jesus doesn't slip away before uh, the the leaders can get hold of him. And then we come to the Last Supper. It's the Thursday evening, and uh, maybe you've seen that painting, the Da Vinci painting of the Last Supper. They're all sitting on one side of a long table. It was nothing like that. But there was a meal, and they were sitting around a table, or lying, really, in those days, leaning on one arm, eating from the table there. And, uh, and it's the Last Supper. And in that meal, Jesus took the bread, which was just part of this uh, special kind of religious meal that they took every year, and he gave it a new meaning. He said, okay, this bread... My body. When you take this bread, I want you to think of my body that's been given for you. And then when you take the the wine, I want you to think of my blood. Okay, so it's just bread and just wine. But for the last 2,000 years, every week all over the planet, people have been taking bread and wine to remember what Jesus did. uh, How he gave his life, how his blood was poured out. He said, this blood is the new covenant It's the the means by which humans can come into a close personal relationship with God. 
It's, it's what I'm going to do for you and I don't want you to forget it. And so he, he made that all clear for them. But in the course of that meal, he said to, to Judas, essentially, I know what you're planning. Get on with it. Suddenly Judas's cover was blown. He didn't realize Jesus knew. Jesus knew. Suddenly, you know, the wheels go into motion. Judas leaves and goes to the leaders. You've got to get him tonight. He knows what's going on, but I can lead you to him. And so suddenly all the wheels are turning. There's this whole conspiracy kind of kicking into gear a little bit quicker than expected. And Jesus is, is going to get arrested and he knows it. Let me read just a few verses here down in verse 26. You'll see a little title that says, Jesus foretells Peter's denial. Verse 26. After the the Lord's Supper, the, the bread and the wine had been explained. Verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So we've got Jesus quietly committed to going to his death. And you've got his followers loudly, boldly declaring they're ready to die. How does it play out? Well, the rest of the chapter kind of gives us both sides of that. It shows us the disciples and just how good their commitment was. And it shows us Jesus and his quiet determination to go to the cross. And then immediately following that, the next passage, Jesus uh, takes them to this place called Gethsemane. It's a, an olive press. Uh, you can go there today. There's these ancient olive trees and that's on the hillside just across the valley from the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, and Jesus says to them, okay, I want, you to, I want you to wait here and pray with me. And he goes off and prays and comes back and they're falling asleep. And it happens a couple of times. And he's like, oh. they couldn't even stay awake. <laughs> that's how committed they were. And then uh, Jesus says, okay, get up, I'm about to be arrested. And then this crowd, this posse comes with clubs and swords and and suddenly the disciples are stirred into action and they're like, oh, quick, rescue Jesus. And Peter pulls out his little kind of fishing dagger thing and uh, tries valiantly to cut somebody in half straight down the middle, which he'd probably need a big sword for. He didn't have a huge sword, so his big sweep came down, bounced off the top of the chap's head and cut his ear off. Slightly awkward when you're trying to cut someone in two to remove an ear. But Jesus says, just stop, stop, stop. You see, Jesus isn't asking his followers to rescue him. He's not saying, okay, I'm dependent on your commitment to me. Just put your swords away. And he hands himself over. And then he gets taken across the city to the high priest's house. It's the middle of the night. It's, a, it's really a kangaroo court. There's no way they should be uh, taking legal proceedings against a criminal at night. It was just not appropriate at all in that culture. But they do it because they've got to act fast. And Peter follows. The rest don't. Verse uh, 50, they all left him and fled. So all these disciples that were saying, we are ready to die for you, Jesus. Just like an hour later, they're fleeing into the night to protect themselves. We get two little verses that are quite bizarre. If you've never read the Bible, you might find 51 and 52 interesting. There's this young man, a teenager, 
who we're told uh, was in, caught up in all of this and uh, one of the people grabbed the bed linen, the sheet, the duvet that he was wrapped in and he fled into the night naked and you're probably thinking, what's that doing in the Bible? I think it was Mark himself, the guy who wrote this book. I think he's making sure that he gets his moment. He's not going to name himself because it is a slightly embarrassing story, isn't it? But the tradition tells us that it was Mark's family that hosted the Last Supper And like any inquisitive teenager, I can imagine Mark sitting on the staircase sort of listening in and hearing all the stuff that was going on. And and then they head off into the night. Oh, this is too good. And so he grabs the nearest dressing gown or sheet and heads out after them until he gets grabbed in the garden and has to flee naked. Just a a little glimpse of something. But the reason I mention it and draw attention to it is because it's one of those things and the Bible's full of them one of those indications that this was written by an eyewitness this is true history this stuff is not made up to make the disciples look wonderful and all kind of fake and false like a lot of historical documents this was just the real nitty-gritty reality and so Mark gets his little moment But you see, there's this whole group of disciples, and they're all committed to Jesus, and then they're all running into the night, apart from Peter, who follows. And Jesus gets interrogated in front of the kind of the the band of the religious leaders that get brought together, and Peter's outside getting interrogated by people standing around a campfire. And three times, he denied knowing Jesus. And so 100% the disciples committed to Jesus, 100% the disciples fail. It's it's kind of a simple thought, but it's a really important one that I want us to, to hear this morning. It's easy for us to think that Christianity is about Christians, right? Christianity is about Christians. That is the followers of Jesus. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, I've met some Christians, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not impressed. Me too. Okay, so you might say, well, that's why I don't like Christianity, Well, actually, if we evaluate Christianity based on Christians, we will always be disappointed. Because Christians are normal humans. Just like non-Christians, Christians fail. Christians make mistakes. Christians do things that they shouldn't do. Christians fall short of their great commitments. It's easy on a Sunday to say, yes, I'm going to live for Jesus, and on Monday, fall flat on our face. You see, the, the problem is we shouldn't evaluate Christianity by Christians. Now, Just to say, these disciples aren't total disasters. If we were to trace the story forward, every one of them eventually would die for Jesus. One of old age, the others, by being martyred. Across the world, different places, decades later, at the tip of a sword or facing crucifixion, they were ready to stand and say, you know what, Jesus rose from the dead. I know it's true. I saw it for myself. Go ahead and kill me. And every one of them died, still faithfully serving Jesus. And over the past 2,000 years, many people who follow Jesus have followed Jesus to the death. We're seeing it in the news right now. Christians in Syria getting arrested, taken, in Libya taken, in Egypt taken, and they're being taken and they're being killed because they will not say, I don't believe in Jesus. They trust him, they follow him, and they die for him. And so it's not that the disciples or Christians are, are failures consistently, but If you try to evaluate Christianity by Christians, you'll be disappointed. 
If you go down through church history, you'll see Christians are on the forefront of an awful lot of positive things in the world. The end, uh, ending of slavery some centuries ago, the, the fight against sex slavery today. There's a lot of Christians, I know Christians that are working right on the front lines of that in Cambodia, in Thailand, in places like that, trying to rescue girls. Christians on the forefront of education and science and, uh, and uh, medical care and all these things, looking after orphans and so on. So I don't want to make Christians sound terrible because some of them have done some good things, but we mustn't evaluate Christianity by Christians. This passage is pointing us, like every passage in the Bible, away from Christians to Christ. If we're going to evaluate Christianity, we need to evaluate Christ. And what we do, what we'll find when we look at Jesus is that Jesus is a different kind of king. He's a different kind of leader. Let me just share a couple of highlights, and then I'm going to put some points up on the board, on the screen here, just to make sure that uh, we don't miss them. Jesus, all the way through this passage, is absolutely determined to go to the cross. Just like he predicted it in the earlier chapters, In the chapter before this one, in 13, which we haven't looked at, he was telling his disciples, look, this is what's going to happen in the world before I return, and here are the signs of the the end of the age. And he explained all of that stuff. And in this chapter, his gaze is firmly set on going to the cross, and nothing makes him waver. The woman breaks the perfume. It's for the day of my burial. He talks to his disciples about the bread and the wine. It's about my death. He comes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays. And I think because of that teenager hiding behind a tree, we know what he prayed. And if you look at his prayer, it's an astonishing glimpse into the core of Jesus' heart, his desires in that moment. Verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Here's Jesus talking to God and calling him Daddy. You see, the Bible teaches us that from before anything existed, Jesus existed. Before there was anything made, Jesus and the Father, the Father and the Son, were loving one another. They were in this beautiful love relationship. The Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Father and the Spirit communicating the love back and forth. And that's why we call our church Trinity because it's such a wonderful, beautiful picture. This God is different from all the other gods. This is a God who talks and listens, who cares and who gives. And here Jesus is crying out to his father and saying, Dad, if there is another way, let this cup pass from me. This this thing that I've got to go through, if there's any other way, would you take uh, take this away and give me the alternative? Anything else? What was it that so bothered him? I'm sure that Jesus was anticipating what he would go through, the the blows, the strikes, the, the, the whipping and the beard being ripped and all the, the physical pain of that, the nails being driven in and hanging exposed in the, the heat of the day. I'm sure, obviously, he was anticipating that and, and viewing that very negatively. But I think the overwhelming thing for him was the sense that I'm about to go and I'm about to face the wrath of God against the sin of humanity. God is the just judge who judges sin, and he judges our sins in Jesus. And Jesus didn't sin. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. He never put a foot wrong as far as the the moral standards of God are concerned. He did not deserve any punishment, and yet he was going to go and take the punishment of the world. 
which meant that his father, who he had been in this close, loving relationship with for all eternity, was suddenly going to be pulled back, and, and there was going to be a separation, and he was going to be alone, and he was going to receive the judgment for sins that we've done. And so you can understand, can't you? Some, at some level, God, if there's any other way, let's go with plan B, please. But, not what I want, what you want. You see, Jesus isn't a typical kind of leader. A typical kind of leader would say, uh, what I want is, is what matters. What I want is, is the, the ultimate. But here, Jesus, the great leader that God has given to us for humanity, the king who's going to come and establish his kingdom in the end, he's saying to his father, Father, you're in charge. I just want to do what you want me to do. And so you can tell, it's not just some kind of uh, sort of mission he was on, you know, he had to go to the cross, he didn't feel a thing. He felt it, and he heard When he was arrested and brought before the religious leaders, he didn't call for angels to set him free or, or for his followers to rise up like an army. In none of that, he was ready to go. And he stood in front of this group of people trying to quickly, hastily pull together a legal um, case against him. They had no case. It was rushed. They didn't have time. They hadn't managed to get their witnesses sorted yet. So you can imagine Jesus standing there in the night in this house with the candles and the oil lamps, whatever they had burning around in this group of people. And and one after another, people were coming out with accusations. Well, I, I saw him do this. Yeah, but I saw him do that. Yeah, well, I heard he said this, but I heard he said that. And couldn't even get two people to say the same thing. And Jesus knew if they can't get two to agree, they've got no case against me. So when the high priest started to question him, Jesus' response was just silence. Didn't defend himself. He didn't point out that this was a farce. He didn't try to escape. He just just stood there. And that really bothered the high priest. The high priest got really flustered by that. And so he demanded to know, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed, the son of God? Jesus gave him a straight answer. He gave him what he wanted. He said, yes. And then he quotes from an Old Testament passage that uh, is kind of the, almost the worst thing he could have said. He says, uh, I am and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You might say, well, so bad about that. That is the ultimate claim in the Old Testament to who he is and to his position and to his authority. And at that, the high priest just ripped his, his robe and said, okay, we don't need to hear anything else. We've heard it for ourselves. He is blasphemed. He's made himself equal with God. He deserves to die. They didn't care if it was true. All they cared about was having an excuse to kill him. And so all the way through the passage, Jesus is quietly, calmly determined to go to the cross. You see, the cross was no accident. The cross was no great kind of uh, rising meteoric leader coming to the fore and then suddenly things go wrong. And things kind of spiral out of control and he ends up dying and becomes a bit of a martyr. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches us that Jesus came to the earth in order to go to the cross. A typical leader offers limited benefits in exchange for a certain amount of loyalty. Think about that. A typical leader says, okay, if you vote for me, then I'll kind of do something for you. Not much, but something. You know, if, if you follow me, then I'll let you be in my gang. 
There's some limited benefits for some amount of loyalty. It's some sort of exchange. But Jesus is different. Jesus, we'll go to the next one here. Jesus offers everything for people who have totally failed him. Isn't that amazing? Every one of us here, if we were to kind of be a little bit introspective and say, okay, how well have I done in my life? How committed to God have I been? Not, not good at all. But Jesus has done everything and given everything for people that have given him nothing. For people that have totally failed. This is a completely different kind of leader. A typical leader protects himself at all costs. Remember, was it 10, 12 years ago? When the troops were working their way through Iraq and they got Saddam's sons and, uh, and then the big hunt was on for Saddam Hussein, this almighty powerful person and eventually they found him with, remember the bearded image of him in a bunker, he kind of on a farm somewhere? He was, let, let go of everything, let go of everyone, I've got to protect myself. That's what a typical leader does. When push comes to shove, they push and shove so that they can protect themselves. But Jesus is different. Jesus' very mission was to give his life. A typical leader will use his followers for his own benefit. You think about the the leaders of uh, political parties or uh, some of the terrorist stuff that's going on. The, The leaders aren't the ones that are doing the suicide bombing. It's always the low ones, the ones that can be convinced into doing it. The leaders stay safely back from the so-called trenches, right? A typical leader will always use their followers for their own benefit. They'll take advantage of them. But Jesus gave his life for the benefit of others. He didn't say, okay, guys, uh, we're going to Jerusalem and you're all going to get crucified. And if you know, things get really bad, maybe I will too. That was never the plan. The plan was we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. You're going to be scattered. You're going to flee. But then I'm going to meet you and I'm going to explain what comes next. And you're going to serve me. A typical leader might even kill to advance his own cause. I said at the start that we watch the news and we see death. And the shocking thing is that it's no longer shocking. Ah, a leader kills people. Ah, a hundred and so many blown up in that mosque. Ah, yeah. We sort of treat it as normal. It's not normal. It wouldn't feel normal if it happened here. It wouldn't feel normal if one of us was killed. It wouldn't feel normal if it was one of our family. But we watch the news and we go, ah, yeah, sadly that's the way of the world. A a typical leader might even kill to advance his own cause. But Jesus is a different kind of king. Jesus let himself be killed for his cause. As we come to the end of our message this morning, I I hope that in some small way, this this passage that we've looked at has pointed us away from thinking that Christianity is about Christians and how committed they are or, or how good they are or how badly they fail. I hope it's pointed us away even from the idea that Christianity is about me making my commitments to God, my resolutions, my determinations. I can fix my life. I can turn over a new leaf. I can be a good person. That's not what Christianity is asking at all. Christianity is about Christ, a completely different kind of king, the kind of king who's ready to lay down his life for our sake. And in doing that, people across the world for the past 2,000 years have heard the message, have thought about it, have prayed about it, have have said, okay, if, if this is true, 
That changes everything. The Bible invites us to, to test the evidence. Easter Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Of course, there's chocolate, and that's a good thing. But more than that, it's the day we remember Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead and walked out of the tomb. And that's the central evidence for Christianity. And Jesus later on would invite his followers, touch, come on, check it out for yourself. See if it's real. Because Christianity isn't asking anyone to make a leap into the dark, believing in some kind of weird hocus pocus stuff. Christianity is saying 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus actually physically, literally rose again from the dead. And today Jesus offers life to those who will accept it. To those who will trust him, he offers forgiveness for sins. He offers a slate completely wiped of all the bad things we've done, said, thought of doing, wiped completely clean. And he offers us the most precious thing that he has, his relationship with his father. And we can have hope, not only for this life, but for all eternity to come. And even if someone should walk in with a blade and say, I'm going to take off your head if you don't renounce Jesus. We can have confidence, not because of our determination, but because of what he's done. Do what you want to me. Jesus is my king. I am his follower. It's not about my determination. I may quake, I may quiver, I may fail, I may become a chicken. But he didn't. He went all the way to his death to open up a way for people like you and like me to come into a relationship that is truly satisfying, a relationship with God himself.